Good afternoon. This is Indigo Radio. I'm Marisa Nielsen. I'm here with Michaela Sims. And hi, Michaela. And Ajene is here as well. Uh, this is WVEWLP Brattleboro, 107.7 FM, your community radio station. Also streaming live online at WVEW.org. Um, you can also find us on Facebook at Indigo Radio and on Instagram. And the views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and guests and not of the radio station. And last week's show was about um, child care, right, for for all? Yep, early child care um, early in particular. Early childhood education, yeah. Yep. And we had Billy Slade and another guest <laughs> on Talking last with week. Becca. Yes. Yeah. Um, so this week, our topic is um, age appropriateness. Develop. We hear the term um, developmentally appropriate a lot in our schools and in our community. So that's the topic that we'll be grappling with today. Uh, we're going to start off with a song and we'll be joined by Lana in a moment. So let's start with um, uh, Pete Seeger. What did you learn in school today? What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? I learned that Washington never told a lie. I learned that soldiers seldom die. I learned that everybody's free. That's what the teacher said to me. And that's what I learned in school today. That's what I learned in school. What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? I learned that policemen are my friends. I learned that justice never ends. I learned that murderers die for the crimes, even if we make a mistake sometime. And that's what I learned in school today. That's what I learned in school. What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? I learned our government must be strong. It's always right and never wrong. Our leaders are the finest men, and we elect them again and again. And that's what I learned in school today. That's what I learned in school. What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? I learned that war is not so bad. I learned about the great ones we have had. We fought in Germany and in France, and someday I might get my chance. And that's what I learned in school today. That's what I learned in school. And we're back. This is Indigo Radio 107.7 LP, your community radio station. And we're talking today about age appropriateness in terms of talking and teaching children. Um, and we have on the line with us Lana Dever. L- Lana, can you hear us? Yes, I can. Good morning or ah, good afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> and Lana is both an educator and a parent. Is there anything else I should say to introduce you? Um, no, I, I guess I wouldn't. I wouldn't call myself an educator yet. <laughs> um, I'm certainly an educator in training. <laughs> educator in training. Okay. Yeah. Well, fair enough. Yeah. I mean, I think that the other piece of that is that you're interacting with young people and you definitely help raise a lot of young people over in your years on this earth. And that is yeah. the yeah. part of an educator, too. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> and so as part of that, you have a lot of experience. Of, you know, I feel like one of the things that uh, parents often talk about is, like, what do we talk about with our kids and when do we do it? And um, yeah. And so the w- term age appropriate is used, and I'm not sure if that's been part of your education. I know you're in, class, in school at UMass, but what does mm-hmm. that mean to you as a parent or as an educator, age appropriate? Well, I think this is a great, a great question, especially since, you, you know, we're people of color living in a predominantly white community. And I really think that the, the concept of age appropriate is a marker of privilege. I don't think that communities of color and children of color, I don't think their parents have the ability to, to say, okay, when am I going to have these tough conversations? Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you look at it, you know, historically or even in current conditions, most children of color, it's not a possibility. Um, 
you know, it, it's for survival. Right, for sure. And so, so black parents, you know, there's the talk that, you know, you have to have, especially with your boys. Mm-hmm. You know, and for children like Tamar Rice, you know, he was 12 years old. Wow. You know, yeah. it, his, his parents couldn't wait for that conversation. Mm. Can so. you tell people who Tamar Rice is? Tamar Rice was a little boy, um, and I forget what town he was in. God, they're all starting to blend together now because there are horrifically so many. Oh, where was it? I think Ohio. Cincinnati. Yeah, Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, And he was playing with a toy gun at a park, and it took about, I think, 12 minutes for the police to arrive after getting a phone call that there was a black man with a gun and to be shot down. Yeah, wow. Yeah. And so, you know, as a parent who's raising a white passing child, I made a conscious decision to raise her as if she wasn't white passing. Mm. And to have those conversations with her about what it means to be black in this country. Well, how did you make that decision? As a black woman, it was never a question for me as well. It wasn't a choice. And and I, you know, we live in in a society where whiteness is the default. And so I chose to t- take whiteness out of that realm and to other whiteness for my daughter. Yeah. And uh, uh, how old is she now? She's six? She's going to be seven. <gasps> oh. I know. Time flies. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty amazing. And, um, and, you know, for me, that makes those questions and those conversations even more important as she's starting to look around her world. She is very confident that she is a black person. And that was important to me, even though she doesn't appear, you know, as a black child. And I feel like even that is such a misnomer because black people look different. You know that yeah. we don't all look the same and no. we don't all have the same color eyes or the same kind of hair. And nope. I see it as really as a political identification. And so people exactly. who I know who could pass and people in their family have, have made other choices to say, to tell people, Mm -hmm. to to make it clear so that people are not confused. And then there's... Yeah, and I've had people say to me, you know, well, what about her white side? Why aren't you honoring that? And my response is, whiteness is going to be fine. It has a way of honoring itself, you know, and (laughs) seeping into every aspect of society. I don't need to coddle that part of her heritage. It will be fine. Aside from the fact that whiteness isn't a isn't a cultural a, a cultural identity <laughs> right. Lana so yeah. this is Marisa how hi, s- hi. <laughs> since you're talking <laughs> about whiteness um you know as not a cultural identity how can you explain a little bit more about how you teach about whiteness um if that's something that you, you know, teach about you know what's funny is I don't okay I don't teach about whiteness and the reason you know I choose to focus on other aspects. You know, her father is Portuguese, you know, so I'll talk about that. And I'll talk about how the Portuguese were involved in the slave trade. Or <laughs> I'll talk about <laughs> Irish immigrants and how, how the Irish weren't seen as white, in, yep. you know, until it was sort of a recent phenomenon. We'll talk about, you know, how whiteness changes and morphs um, as it needs to. But um, that is but talking about whiteness. As, yeah, that's, that's that the history, is, right? Yes. Yeah, but not as far as, like, honor your white heritage, you know, because I don't feel like that's something we need to do. She'll learn about, you know, here's how I feel for myself. I feel like I spent my life studying white men until I made the Mm. conscious decision to stop. Mm. Um, And so for my daughter, I know that she'll have all of those, you know, she'll never have to look at whiteness in a negative light unless I bring that to her. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, it it has a way of, of making itself the forefront of every discussion. When did you start having these conversations with your daughter? Oh, my God. Um, (laughs) Somewhere when she was around two or three, I was noticing that she was having negative ideas about blackness. Mm. And she she would always preface it by saying how much she loved me and she loved my skin, but that she didn't like, she didn't like brown people and she didn't want to be brown. Mm. And I immediately sort of launched like a, <laughs> like a, a counter campaign. Right. Um, yeah. And, and that has gone strong since then. Because <laughs> I just thought that being raised in this wonderful progressive, you know, environment with all these wonderful liberal white people was going to be fine. And then I realized that no, no, the racism um, finds a way of seeping in. So, oh, it's yeah. A, it's heartbreaking. I'm sure too, that here yeah. is your child that, you want so many great things for, um, 
already internalizing these messages and you don't know where they came from directly. Like you can't point to any one event and say, oh, this happened. And therefore it's just all around us. Yeah, no, ever. I can't. I mean, and this is the same little girl who last night runs upstairs with her iPad and goes, Mama, there's a black child on YouTube. I found one. (laughs) (laughs) So we have gone in the, or, you know, and at night she wants to read books about Harriet Tubman and we're reading, um, what is it, Virginia Hamilton, I think is her name. She has the books, um, you know, The People Could Fly, and we read that every night. Um, Yeah, so she's gone in the complete other direction. And it makes me so happy. <laughs> <laughs> it's a struggle. Being a parent is a struggle. And what would you say to other parents who say that their kids are not ready? They're not ready to hear about the harsh things that are going on in the world? Hmm. Well, I would automatically assume those children were white. And those parents were white. Um, and then I would point them to all of the things that are happening in the news, you know, just recently that uh, shooting um, was it yesterday, God, mm-hmm. at the school and, and how we can prevent those kinds of things from happening if we have these conversations often and early. Mm. Yeah. You know, racism isn't going to go away, you know, on its own. <laughs> you know, none of these things, systematic oppression, you know, th- these things aren't going to go away unless we have these conversations. And so I would, urge them to have them and to put aside their privilege. Oh, thank you so much. Are there any final thoughts that you have about age appropriateness and what that means at this current age? Yeah. I mean, I just want, I guess I want to say thank you both for having this conversation and Michaela, especially, I know you're raising, you know, you're raising a boy who is black Yeah. and you know, this isn't something that you have the luxury of putting off and you have to think about how he's going to be viewed in the world. And I guess I would just ask all of the, you know, the parents who don't have that experience to think about, about experiences that are outside of their own, you know, and how their children are going to affect our children and how are they going to coexist together. Yeah. That's it. Thank you. Thank you so that much, Lana. Thanks for your time. Yeah. Thank you, guys. I hope I was helpful. Have <laughs> a wonderful much. day. Amazing. You too. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> So thank you very much. That was Lana talking to us about raising children of color in our world today. Um, We're going to go to a song break. This song is Tell Them the Truth by Sebastian Sturm, and then we will be back.
Welcome back. This is Indigo Radio at 107.7 FM, WBEWLP Brattleboro, your community radio station. And we were just speaking to Lana Dever about raising a child of color in Vermont and what does it mean to be age appropriate and having discussions with that child. Um, and with us right now, we have who I call a social justice educator, also a parent, um, warrior. Is that right, Angela? Can you hear us? Yes. <laughs> so you, you, you can add to your my description or correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> I'll take that. <laughs> <laughs> great. Um, and so Angela is with us. Uh, Angela has spent some time, quite a long time, um, working with people in this area at, around issues of social justice, particularly race and class. Uh, around all age groups and is raising her own young children. And so, I don't know, could you just tell us about what age appropriateness means to you to start off? Sure. Um, So my kids right now are six and nine, and they're white, and they have class privilege, and able-bodied privilege, and, and really... They have a lot of privilege in this world where there's so much injustice. And so I think for my kids and kids like them, so much of um, their experience is that they are normal and their their way of moving through the world feels normal to them. It's normalized by school, by media. And so I find it really challenging to to use this concept of age appropriateness, which I, I think is really important. But I also want to make sure that I'm checking what's age appropriate with what has is really a social norm of keeping our kids young and innocent as long as possible. And, and for my kids, that's fairly easy. And so I feel like I, it's really important for me to make sure that they're have education and awareness about what's going on in the world around them um, in ways that that educators might not feel is age-appropriate, actually, Mm. um, just because of social norms. So um, I think that my... I might push the envelope a little too far sometimes, but, um, but I think it's really important that kids know, just like the song you were just playing, that kids know the truth mm-hmm. and um, and not just the truth from my perspective, but the truth from a lot of different perspectives that, that they're that they have this uh, this window into the other people's experience, people who who are different than them. I think that's really important. And you said push the envelope. Um, I'm wondering what you mean by that and what kind of questions are your children asking? Um, my kids ask, my kids aren't big talkers. We don't have much big conversation in our house. We have a lot of running around. Mm, right. <laughs> we have an active household. However, they are really observant and you might hear them running and screaming in the background. That's great. <laughs> um, they, they're really observant and they're picking up a lot. And so it's not like a daily conversation in our household. It's more, um, really quick and, and somewhat out of the blue conversations. Like, 
this morning, uh, so this this weekend we camped out um, in Brattleboro as part of a, a fundraising event that Groundworks does every year to raise money for homeless folks in our area. Right. And we've done that for the past five years. And we were camping out this weekend. Um, this morning, my youngest said to me, oh, mom, I, you know, this, this weekend I heard someone who looks like they might be homeless say to a group of people who were watching them, you know, what the, what the F are you looking at? And I said, oh, yeah, this is just an example of a, of a you know, two-minute mm-hmm. conversation that happens in passing at our house. And I said, oh, well, what made you think that they might be homeless? How, how could you tell? Uh-huh. Oh, well, they were wearing raggedy clothes. But okay, well, that, you know, that might be a way to tell. Uh, and I, I started asking some more questions. Oh, so why do you think they said that to a group of people? And he said, oh, Mom, I don't, I'm done talking about it. That's it. But that same conversation might show up later, and I'll have a chance to ask more questions. You know, why do you think that some people have homes and other people don't? Uh, does it need to be that way? Could we change that? Those kinds of questions. And usually my, my what I'm going for is to get at the root. Why, why does this happen, and could it be different? Who has power in this situation, and who doesn't have power? And could we change that dynamic? And how do you decide how much to say and how much to hold back, like with a six-year-old? I, I don't know, actually. People ask me that all the time. I think it depends a lot on the kid. And I think parents know their kids really well. And I think teachers know their classrooms really well. And they know how to, um, how to communicate with, with mm-hmm. the, those kids. Uh, I think for me, um, really it's about time. So I don't feel like in that moment I need to say all the things about that situation. I can ask a question or two and then a month or two later ask another couple of questions. And it's like the slowly unfolding a story that my kids or a puzzle like my my kids keep getting new pieces to the puzzle and are working in their minds on putting it together um and it sounds angela too like you're um making connections by asking the same types of questions to your kids you know so you'll ask that same kind of question about power over and over and over again um to make so you know so it doesn't seem so complicated maybe that it's um Things can be simple, but still truthful. Yeah. Thank you, Marissa. That is exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> that thing, yes. Yeah. Um, and I'm I in a different situation. My, just um, some of my friends who have kids that are similar ages are asking and having much more complicated conversations with their kids because their kids are they're having conversations. Like, they want to talk about it. My kids don't necessarily want to talk about it, and so I tend to do, yeah, more of that question asking about power dynamics, um, whereas, you know, some of my, my nine-year-old, his friends are studying history and having really detailed conversations, so it just really depends on, on the kid and what they're ready for. I mean, I think that that is a hard decision to make, and I'm in a different situation because my kid is a chatterbox. Um, mm-hmm. But I often, um, since he was small, have encouraged him to talk to people. That if he see he, if he's like curious about something that's going on, I'm like, I don't know, ask them. Like, why is that person? I'm like, it's a wheelchair, but you can go ask them about it. And I know yeah. that there is risk in that, but there's less risk for a child doing that than there is for me. So like, I'll watch him, and like he'll go over and talk to blind people. He'll talk to anyone on the street and often people that I wouldn't talk to. So in that way, I learned lessons from him. Cause he'll go up to anyone looking any kind of way and like, be like, is that your dog? And, and I'm like, Oh, <laughs> don't tense up your body. That sends a message. Um, so in that way, um, he 
is the teacher. Um, but mm-hmm. also, he's telling me what he's ready for because then he'll ask questions like, and he'll say loud like, "Why don't they have any teeth?" And I'm like, "Oh," and then I have to not shame that question and engage in it. The the only challenge that I have as a parent is that he doesn't often want my answers. He wants that other person's answer. And, mm. and, um, and sometimes um, I worry about that because I might have a different answer to that question than the person he's asking. Um, and so in that way, sometimes I wish he was more insular, but it's like I've cultivated this idea in his head that he should talk to people. And so then he does it. And so I can't be mad about it. Um, <laughs> but I'm wondering about things that you've learned in your lifetime and when you learn them and are there things that you wish you would learn when you were small? Yeah, I, I, my parents did an amazing job really of teaching me about consensus Mm. and consent and how to be in community with all different kinds of people and how to love people unconditionally and how to uh, restore harm, restore uh, the the relationship when harm is done. You know, really, really amazing lessons there. Um, And yet they didn't teach me how to do that in, um, with a, with a much more, with a understanding of a larger context. It was more in the home, in our community. And I wish I had been taught more how to do that work in resistance to oppressive, larger oppressive systems. And so that, you know, for me, that's one of my goals that I'm teaching my kids about community, about consent, about how to, how to restore relationship or transform relationship even, um, but also not just in our home and with our friends, but also in our larger community and uh, in this country, in this world. So we talk about not just, is this fair at home, but we talk about, is this fair in the workplace? You know, we talk about the, the struggle for $15 an hour. Uh, minimum wage. We, you know, we talk about Gaza and um, the struggle to end oppression in Gaza. Um, and so, you know, I didn't have those kinds of lessons when I was growing up. Um, I wasn't taught about power, power dynamics in that way, power structures. And so that's really important to me to teach my kids about, about those larger structures. And I, and we've done work together, and I know that the um, one of the prevailing notions that exists across the board is this idea of safety. Um, and people need to be safe to be unsure. People need to feel safe to talk about difficult topics. What do you think about that that in relation to young people? Well, the, what I usually uh, talk about in the workshops that I do is that that our learning edge is when we're uncomfortable. So it's, it's a di- little bit different than safety. Um, it, but, but it's important that we're uncomfortable. That's what, that's what begins to expand the, the neural pathways in our brains. And so, yeah, it, we, you know, there's a feeling of wanting our kids to be safe and comfortable. Um, and then, is that really preparing them for the world that they live in? And I don't think it is. I think that that our kids, my kids, need to be uncomfortable to learn, and they need to uh, be unco- have that experience so that they're able to you know, make make change for for good in the world around them too. Yeah. Are there? Any- yeah. I, I, Go ahead. I um, and I. I can see how that's, that's uh, been really good for them. Yeah, how do you not see their, that? Not their favorite, but 
but they they are <laughs> more resilient, I think, than they might have been otherwise. <laughs> Could you say more about that? Yeah. Uh, let's see. What's an example? My kids are not so much like your your son. They they don't talk to people. I'll say, why don't you go ask? They're like, no way. There's no <laughs> way I'm going to talk to that person. <laughs> However, because we are around a lot of people who are different than them mm-hmm. on a regular basis, they have gotten more comfortable. And, and so I think for me, making sure that they have those kind of stretching, growing experiences regularly has made them more comfortable in being uncomfortable. Right. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. Are there any other final thoughts that you have while you're with us? Yeah. uh, One more thing I want to share is that I also, I don't think I was taught when I was young that I had power to make change. Mm. And I, I really want to teach my kids that. I want to teach my kids about the way that people have always resisted and worked together to resist injustice and oppression. And, and so, yeah, I, I, I t- you know, try to do, try to talk to my kids a lot about uh, about that, about resistance and about history, his, historical struggle, and that they also have a role and responsibility in creating a, a just and equitable world. So, yeah. Thank you so much, Angela. Yeah. Thanks, Thanks for, for calling. Of course. We hope to hear you again on the radio. We love to have your perspective. <laughs> So, great. Thanks for, thanks for doing the show. I really appreciate it. All right. We'll see you soon. Say Have a great day. Okay. Bye. Bye. That was Angela Burkfield with us talking about age appropriateness and raising two white sons in Vermont. And we're going to go to a song break. This is Sweet Honey in the Rock, member of the world community. And we'll be back. have a responsibility to be the best that I can be, to care for you like I care for me, to want for you what I want for me. As a member of the world community. Member of the world community. Connected to God's humanity. Don't want to be a part of a world where people are not free. I have to be a member of the world community. I have to be one in the number of all humanity No color, no class, no gender is more important than the love that God has in store For me, for you, but what we have to do is change how we recognize the truth It's not coming from the media, it's coming from the hearts of people all around the world Who need a fresh start Peace, no war, no senseless death Who want a way to celebrate God in breath Life less strife, light, hope Right, change, grow, let's strong, more right. Pull together, it is worth the fight. Sing the alphabet and make the rhythm tight. Add a little flavor with a bit of spice. Change your life, sing! A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, B, Q, R, S, T, U, V, W, X, Y, Z. That's how we sing our Create a brand new society. 
justice for all racism must cease. Kindness between you and me. Learning respect is so easy. Mother Earth, without you, what would we do? Nurturing resources for us to use. programming on WVEW is underwritten in part by Everyone's Books. Located in downtown Brattleboro at 25 Elliott Street, Everyone's Books is a family-owned, independent bookstore that has been serving the community for over 30 years. They specialize in books about social change, the environment, politics, and travel, and offer a huge range of children's books. You can reach them by phone at 802-254-8160 or online via their website at everyonesbks.com. WVEW thanks Everyone's Books for their support of this station. And we're back. This is 107.7 WVEW LP, your community radio station, and you're listening to Indigo Radio. And we're talking about age and developmental appropriateness in terms of talking to young people about what's going on in the world. Um, we first spoke to a parent and educator in training, Lana Dever, and then we spoke to another social justice uh, educator and parent, Angela Burkfield, and we're back. Um, so, um, Michaela, I wanted to ask you, uh, in thinking about planning for this radio show, why, why do you think this topic is so important for us to talk about on air today? Um. For me, uh, I think that when I look at my child, as much as I want to shield him from the challenges in the world, they're all around him. And so it's not a matter of what which topics to talk about with him. I feel like pretty much all topics are on the table. The question is, what words do I use to help explain it to him? And so um, it's a question of adjusting my vocabulary and engaging to him where he's at because he's curious about all things um and making sure that I don't scare (laughs) scare him um but it's okay for him to be cautious about the world you know and and to be honest there is a healthy amount of fear as well Mm. and I'm trying to figure out what that balance is um I mean, Angela mentioned talking about Gaza with her child, you know, and um, there are children there. Right. So it's not a secret. Like, it's not... So children obviously know about it. So 
why wouldn't our children here know? And I, I remember when uh, I was a child, actually, one of the big things was famine. It was huge in the 70s and 80s. There was, and I'm, they're famines now, too, but they're not as talked about as the way they were in the 80s. And, you know, and I haven't asked my mom about this, but I was well aware that people were starving, but also it, it was a way of otherizing. And so my question, too, is not only how do I talk to my child about what's happening in the world, but how do I see him, help him see himself as connected to it? Mm-hmm. So for me, it's like, oh, those people over there are starving. Poor them. Instead of saying that we're connected to that because there is enough food for everyone in the world, which mm-hmm. I didn't know. I was like, oh, poor them, they're starving. And then, you know, the old adage, like, eat all your food because people are starving. Right. Um, or like, <laughs> I what I was taught was that it's because of droughts. And it's just, it is what it is because there are these droughts and climate change. Um, and I was never taught that it was connected to what humans are doing in the world. And right. maybe it was the drought, but the drought was caused by something. <laughs> right, for sure. And so I'm hoping that he can make that connection. And I feel like that's why it's important to talk about it is because um, adults have to, we have to make those connections first to facilitate our children making them. And so it has to always be on the table. Everything has to be on the table. I remember um, there's this, people say, oh, don't talk about politics or the world at the dinner table because it upsets people's stomach and no one gets along. Well, then when do you talk about it? Mm. Because you're always talking about politics. The challenge is when people disagree is a problem. Mm. And so as adults, we have to learn how to disagree and analyze the world so that we can teach our children to. Because if they're just not talking about things or not talking to people they don't agree with, then the world is going to be a really sad place. And, and you said something just now. You're always talking about politics, but sometimes the, there's conversations that people don't realize are political because it, be, it has become so natural, so whitewashed, um, you know, and then we turn in other conversations and people might say, well, that's a difficult conversation or that's a controversial or um, that's too political, um, where everything that we say all the time is political. Um, it's just some might seem, as Angela said, more uh, normal. What did she say? She normal, yeah. A word like that, normal. Like white. I'm not white. I'm right. just normal. I'm regular. Right. <laughs> I'm regular. I don't so. have a race. <laughs> do you have a race, Marisa? Yes, yeah. I do. You're just it's, regular. It's white. <laughs> Caucasian American. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I mean, I feel like, and the term, and the term whitewashing is an interesting one, but I don't think, I don't know how you're using it, but I don't think of it as race-based. I was thinking, I, when I think of whitewashing, I think of this idea that we all, everything is the same. Mm. And so that there's just this blanket covering of all issues to say, oh, we think the same thing. Uh. We look the same. We are the same. We're all the same class. Mm. Um, and so that any bringing up of difference then is controversial. Mm. Uh, and that is a challenge that we come up with up against. And so people will say, okay, we can walk through Brattleboro and look for signs of the Apenaki. What will we find? Mm. To me, that's an example. W- will there be any plaque? I'll, there'll be some plaques for the SD organ factory mm-hmm. or I don't know what else. Um, but what will we find, you know? And, and that is part of it. It's that we, we should know what's happening. Yeah. Um, Michaela, I think we're going to go to a, a short partial song break because we have one more speaker um, that's going to come on air in a moment. Is that right? I'm hoping. Great. So we're going to go to just a partial song break. Um, This is Teach the Children Well, and then we'll be back with Indigo Radio. We're on the road Must have a code That you can live by And so Become yourself Because the best Is just a goodbye children well Cause their father's hell Did slowly go by 
This is Indigo Radio 107.7 LP, your community radio station. And we're back with Bessie Jones, uh, early educator extraordinaire. Bessie, can you hear us? Yes, I can hear you. And I have to admit, it's obvious, I'm in the Bessie Jones fan club. (laughs) 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 Bessie is my son's teacher. And I learn so much from her all the time, just by the way she talks to him. Um, but I wanted to ask you, in your training and your long-time experience, I'm not sure how else you want to introduce yourself, but if you want to add to what I said, you feel free. Okay. Um, yeah, I think you kind of summed it up. I am, um, I've been teaching early ed for seven years now, and I've had a long-term relationship with families um, parenting children um, for 20 years. So um, I've learned a lot along my path. Yeah, and I think we all benefit from that knowledge, well, any of us in the community. Um, but I wanted to ask you, we've been talking about age appropriateness, and we've had some parents on, and um, what does it mean to you developmentally or age appropriate in your work with young people? Um, well, the children that I'm dealing with are, you know, they're in their first life cycle. So, um, developmentally, their experience in the world, um, is more of their own volition. So, um, I'm not trying to add or create anything other than what's going on from inside out for them. Um, And so age-appropriate for, you know, with children that I'm dealing with, especially, which is such a, it's such a crucial part in their development, is um, allowing them to come into their own experiences as it comes to them. Um, So, you know, like from a social perspectiveness and also from moral impulse um, also from the ability to physically execute. Um, so, so yeah. So, and my age group, you know, is infant to five years old. Right. And I, I feel like that is, there is a lot going on there though, because I know that Biko comes home, <laughs> uh, talking about a lot of things. I, I remember what I, I feel like he was like, he wasn't, wait, he came to you before he was three. So he came home one day and was like, Mom, I'm black. Are you black? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, 
Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I didn't hesitate, but I hadn't heard him say that before. And uh-huh. I know that, um, you know, children see people sleeping on the street and they see things. And so when they see that, how do you engage in that conversation? Like, so that Bika was noticing the skin color differences, like all the kids are. So Well, this, this is one of the reasons why diversity is so important. Because at, within the age group that I'm dealing with, um, children do have their own innocent experiences with what's going on with them or in, in the world. So in my particular program, I have as many children of color as I have white children. And so the children are looking at each other's skin color. They are touching each other's hair. They are hugging each other and rubbing each other's arms. And when that happens, and it comes up all the time, you know, um, I do things like, you know, yes, like, you know, at the time my hair was twisted. So I would say, yes, you know, Miss Bessie has twisted hair. Biko has an afro. You know, Grace has, like, you know, straight brunette hair or things that they are actually experiencing. Um, So I would take it, you know, I try to drop it down a notch and be where they are and be what they're seeing and have that discussion be what they are naturally internalizing. So if a child is speaking of something and noticing something, they're also noticing silence. So Mm. if a parent is silent around that information, a child is noticing that. A child is noticing, you know, you can talk about having people of color in your life all you want to, but your child is not experiencing you having people of color in your life, then when someone of color is approaching, you know, you might see a different, your child will express honesty. So if it's coming naturally, yes, we'll discuss it. But for children the age that I'm dealing with, it would be hard to, you know, kind of fictitiously create a story in order to, you know, introduce them to the concept. But when they're, be, when they're naturally experiencing it, if you choose to ignore it, your silence is saying something. When they naturally experience it, if we're engaging, it with them, engaging in it with them, you know, then it's not something that's like such a big wow or a big aha moment. It's something that's naturally a part of what we're all experiencing. Yeah, and I was talking before, I don't, I'm sure you didn't hear, but um, we went to the day of mourning and, you know, Biko's, yeah, he wasn't four yet. Um, and so, yeah, there are people are say, telling speeches and things are happening. And so I'm not explicit with him, but he's, he is looking around and seeing mm-hmm. people from all different backgrounds and people in wheelchairs and people who are blind. And so I often encourage him to talk to people to say, like, what mm-hmm. is the stick for? Because often he doesn't want my answer anyway. Um, so I don't know what you think about that and how your children, you've taught your children to engage with the world over time, especially when they were small. Um, well, as far as engaging with someone who is, you know, in a situation where a child's not familiar with, it can be tricky Mm because we don't know, you know, where that person is, you know, in their own comfort, you Mm -hmm. know, and sometimes I, I, I could say maybe that could feel intrusive or, you know, maybe some people will use it as a, you know, a teachable moment. You know, like I used to always wear my my locks wrapped, like, for years. And for me, if a child, you know, was like, what's that on your head or why do you have your hair wrapped? It Because I'm comfortable with it because I love it and because I appreciate it, I have dialogue and conversation to share that with them, you know, and people could be healing. I don't know, you know, so sometimes it's just tricky. It's Mm -hmm. tricky um, about how to, um, you know, in the moment is always, I guess, the best teacher, you know, Um, but yeah. And then what did you say after that? You were, you asked me something and I kind of, Oh, I don't know. But Oh, you said about my children. Yes. Um, And then, yeah, early on, I will honestly admit that, you know, I learned from experience. And because I live in a, you know, predominantly white area and I have, you know, children of color, black children, I I did give them a lot of information, which I know now that was possibly too soon for them to process. 
but out of my own fears, out of my own experience, and out of my own understanding, and also being in a predominantly white area, um, at that time, it felt really important to me for me to try and, you know, catch my kids up to these adult experiences and involve them in what they might possibly experience. Um, I would say now that I don't agree with my, um, with doing that so soon. It didn't damage them to my knowledge or anything like that. <laughs> we always had these clear conversations, but out of fear, out of, you know, wanting to protect my children, I did create situations and talk to them and talk to them and talk to them. Well, so, be ready, right? Be, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, one of my friends said it's sort of like collecting pieces of evidence in all of your life experiences. So the processing might happen over a long period of time, but you're always collecting those pieces of evidence about the world around you. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, yeah. I mean, one of the, one of the, the talk of the town here in Brattleboro is people on the street, people asking for money. Um, how would you explain that to a kid in your class if you were walking in town and someone was asking for money? Um, honestly, you know, it's, it, that's difficult because I, you know, I'm not mm-hmm. actually walking in town with kids. <laughs> but, <laughs> we, you stay yeah. in the woods, we know. Yeah, um, I... Um, let's see. I, I guess the way that I can offer things to the children at the age that I teach mm-hmm. would be through storytelling. Oh, okay. So I would easily, you know, like, and I've had this experience, you know, I worked at a school in Brattleboro and I have had an experience, you know, with um, a family feeling as if though, you know, they would like to find a way to process different things that the child is seeing in the, you know, in the public. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a story was what I did. I I brought a story into our story time that talked about um, two young girls and one girl ended up looking different than another girl and everyone was afraid of her in the village. And, you know, so it was, it was brought to a level where the child could think about differences in a way that didn't, wake them up too much you know with me trying to like give them like a common day-to-day story or something like that and um it really does work I feel like storytelling and creating um situations through stories is the best way for a child to take that story and to be able to use that as perspective um you know with what they're experiencing in day-to-day life nice Thank you so much, Bessie. Are there any final words you have to wrap us up for our show today? Um, just, you know, that thank you guys for having me, first of all. I, I'm so honored to be on your <laughs> show, and it's so exciting. <laughs> um, yeah, just that, like, just remembering when we talk about age being age-appropriate, that, like, oftentimes we as parents, educators, um, <laughs> in caregivers with our children, our experiences oftentimes can overshadow the expectations of the child and that children really within the age group that I'm teaching, you know, they really can't process the way that we're processing. And sometimes I feel like we, we forget that. Okay. Thank you so much. Have a great Thank day. Thank you so much. You too. <laughs> Bye. 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 And this is Indigo Radio. We were talking to Bessie Jones, and I feel like that closes us out for the day. We were talking about age appropriateness, and we ran the gamut. <laughs> um, basically, that kids are able to process what they're seeing in the world is how we do it is what matters. I feel like that was my takeaway. Also mine. Thank you, Michaela. Thank you so much. We'll see you next week at noon for Indigo Radio on WVEWLP Brattleboro, 107.7 FM, your community radio station. Deliver if even they wanted to. And so they're beginning to understand an ancient historical truth. The only way the working class can assure its own well-being and that of its children is if it acts on its own behalf. Striking 
is a way that workers show their solidarity, get together, which is their strongest suit, and fight for what they need. And so it is honorable for us to recognize and appreciate that 53,000 employees of the University of California began a strike, May 